walk through the book of Psalms. We started last week. Psalm chapter 2 this, this morning will be our passage. <clears throat> As you're turning there, I want to give you just a little bit of uh, background and history of this text. The earliest, most dependable manuscripts tell us that this text was once part of Psalm chapter 1. That the earliest text, the Masoretic texts tell us the earliest text of this were that it continued the content from chapter 1. It was later divided under the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. That's the earliest division that we see. But everyone from the earliest commentators till today agrees that this rightly is seen as continuing to introduce to us the entirety of the Psalms. Psalm chapter 1, you remember last week we said, gives us the blessed man. And ultimately, the only blessed man is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who deserves that title. He's the only one who lived up to the call of God in the law. And so he is the blessed man. And that through him we are blessed. So by coming to him and being in him, we are blessed. Psalm 2, and that, that theme, by the way, will be carried throughout the psalm. But Psalm 2 brings up the point that because he is the blessed man, he has been exalted by God to the position of King of kings and Lord of lords. And ultimately, those that are blessed will be blessed because they found refuge in him. If you notice the inclusio of this text, Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the seat, or nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers or scorners. Okay? Blessed is the man, is the way Psalm 1 begins. One of the key pointers to us that Psalm 1 continues through what we now call Psalm 2, look at Psalm 2, 12, verse B. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So you have the conclusion of the fortunate one is the one who doesn't walk in the way of, of the wicked, nor stand in the counsel of the sinner, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. The blessed, the fortunate one. And how do we know they don't do that? Because they're blessed by taking refuge in him. It includes everything between in these two blessed statements. So in our earliest text, we see this to be just one great introduction to the entirety of the Psalms, covering two great matters. One, how can we be blessed? And two, who are we blessed through? And then the writer of the Psalms, as they compile and edit and place them together, call us to remembrance of these two ideas for the rest of the, of the, of the book. And this indeed is one of the greatest of the Psalms. I, I, I got a feeling I'm going to say that a lot. I studied this text, you know, for, for Bible study and, and my own personal study for years. And then the last two weeks, I've really grabbed down into the depths of it. And it's become something spectacular to me. As I think about this text, um, my mind is drawn away to pure worship of who Christ is. As we look at Psalm 2, we're looking at a text that was quoted repetitively in the New Testament, alluded to constantly. It's the most quoted psalm in the book of Revelation. 
It's the most quoted psalm in the book of Revelation, and, and it's quoted and alluded to in many books of the New Testament. It's divided into four stanzas. Four parallel stanzas. Verses 1 through 3, stanza 1. It's going to tell us of, and this is the point of my outline, the derision of the nations. The derision of the nations. 4 through 6, the second stanza, stanza presents us with the declaration of God. 7 through 9, the singers would have been singing of the dominion of the king. And 10 through 12, the delight of submission. So as we look through this text, we're going to come in to the very presence, the very throne room of our king. I hope that we do, and that God will transport us there. This is a royal psalm, also known as a messianic psalm, because it points us to the fulfillment being in the Messiah, in Christ. There's some arguments, and some people would say, David wrote this psalm. Possibly he did. I believe he probably did. And they would have said the occasion of his writing was looking forward to the coronation of his son Solomon. And I think that very well may be. And some even, if you read the commentaries closely, will say it's likely, when you read that in a commentary, just let me key you in to the way that that works, that means they don't know. When they use a term like it's likely, what they're saying is our best guess is that it was used by the people of Israel whenever they brought in a new king in the dynasty of David in the city of Jerusalem. When they brought in a new king, they sang this psalm, so some would say. We don't know that. The reason I say that and the way I'm stressing that is I think that 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 became very popular in the scientific modern era to assign this text to the Old Testament ancient practice of bringing in a king. Because in that day, the church became very fixated on the wooden and physical translations, very focused on past dating things and saying, well, this is the real meaning, the only meaning. In other words, it kind of cuts off looking ahead to a fulfillment, looking ahead to a person, a one who particularly fulfills this text. It makes it historical and therefore it's easy to deal with. It kind of does away with the personalness of the text. You have to be careful. That became very popular, it's picked up, but now I'm thankful that so many are turning away from that and saying, well, well, maybe, but there's no proof of that anywhere in the ancient history of Israel. We don't see that written in any of the ancient uh, teachers as they talk about this psalm. But what we find from the earliest interpretations of both the Jews and the Christian church is that all of them unanimously said the only one who can fulfill this is one to come, the Messiah in the ancient days. And then in the New Testament, church fathers, we find consistent witness. This text is about one man and one man only, Jesus Christ. Nobody else, not Solomon and none of his sons come close to fulfilling this text. And I hope by the end of the day that we will do the same. That we will say, well, maybe they did sing it around the balls of the coronation of the king of Israel. But who we know they sang it about and who we know we will sing it of from this day forward is of Christ. He is the one who fulfills this text. The Psalms, Spurgeon said, 
without Christ is a dead book. It has very little help or hope for you. So I hope to press you to Christ. I hope to push you to Him. Let's look at the derision of the nations. The first verse is by the narrator of the passage. He says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? That's a repetitive question. He's asking that to answer that. He wants to ask you a question or bring up a question so that he can give you the answer to it. Why are these people raging? That word rage would be better understood to be noisy convocation. Why are they having a noisy convocation? Why are they there murmuring would be a good way to understand this against the, 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 the king. Why are they constantly in turmoil over this king? That's his question. Well, verse 2 says the kings of the earth have, the reason is because they've set themselves against him. They've taken counsel together against the Lord's anointed. Why are they so noisy? Why are they so bothered? Why are they in such turmoil? Because they have decided in their minds they will not accept the king. The ultimate king. They see themselves as the final authority. They don't want to seek the real authority. The one who would be the king of kings. And they take this counsel together. And what do they come with in verse 3? But to tell us, or to tell their people, we must burst their bonds, the bonds, apart and cast away their cords from us. See, the lost kings of the earth have no choice but to throw off the law of God because they know they cannot fulfill it. They see it as a trap to them. They see it as a yoke of heavy burden. They view it as restraining rather than freeing. Because Why? Do they see the law that way? Why do you see the law that way? That might be a good question. It's very possible that many of you see the law as a restraint and an imprisonment and a cage and a trap and it's squelching all of my creativity. I can't be who I really want to be. Why? Because you have set your mind against the ruler. You have set your heart against the king. And so you see his ways as repressive rather than freeing. This is the derision of the nations. As a matter of fact, Acts 4, verses 23 through 30, if you'll hold your place in Psalms and turn to Acts 4, we find the early church's interpretation of this passage. Acts 4, 23 says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests, talking about Peter and John when they were released, what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, when the congregation heard it, they lifted up their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. When did this happen, we ask? When did it happen? Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod, the representative of the Jews, and Pontius Pilate, the representative of the Roman Empire, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Who has set themselves against the king? The whole world, the apostles say. The people in this prayer 
say, God, everyone, Jew and Gentile, follow their leaders in declaring that you will not be their king. In mocking you and persecuting you, as we see in verse 28. They gathered to do what? Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Truly, in these first three verses, we see that the people have gathered against God's anointed. The people have sought to destroy His rule. And they did it uniquely in gathering together in Jerusalem on the Passover day to crucify the Lord. And for the moment, it seemed they had the upper hand. But then God made a declaration. One that He had already set forth in Psalm chapter 2. If you look at verses 4 through 6, it says, He who sits in the heavens does what? What? They deride him and he laughs. Psalm 115 says, But our God is seated in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases or whatever pleases him. When they gathered together in Jerusalem thinking they had brought together the greatest coup of all mankind, they would destroy the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God laughed at their foolishness. God mocked their mockery. God put to shame that they had set their hearts against the king. Why? We're going to see it right here. He spoke forth in his wrath and he terrified them with his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's a very specific place Zion is. It's old Jebusite fortress. When David came into the city, what's now the city of Jerusalem, he had to conquer the stronghold, and he did. He conquered it, and he immediately showed his rule over it by bringing the Ark of the Covenant and sitting it on that hill and declaring, this is God's land. It became known as the land of, of the city of God, and particularly this hill became known as the Holy Hill of God because it contained the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. And it was the place where all worship would take place, in a sense. In these early days, God set forth his city and said, From this place I will declare forth the salvation of the nations. And it was from this place that he did that. Because it was his king who was enthroned on the hill of Zion, who suffered, who had suffered the crucifixion and the the, the, the rebellious plan of the whole world, the Jews and the Gentiles, and suffered the crucifixion. And yet God says, I have placed my king on my hill. When we think about the rejection of Jesus Christ, it didn't stop with those early leaders, did it? It has continued. Diocletian, one of the Roman emperors, one of the most horrific of the leaders, he built two, two pillars after he conquered Spain. One of them declared that he had stamped out all who believe in the name of this Jesus, the Christ. And secondly, 
he said, I have, he declared, I have, victor- I have victory over the teaching that this Christ, this Jesus Christ, is Lord. Diocletian is dead. Jesus Christ and his followers are not. Julian the apostate, who also had his day in Rome, at the peak of his power, it said that he lifted his scepter to heaven and said, I strike you, O Galilean. That's the way he spoke of Jesus Christ. But after being wounded in battle, mortally wounded, realizing that his death was, on, was near him, he wouldn't repent, he wouldn't fall to his knees, yet he grabbed his clotted blood and flung it towards heaven in rebellion against God. Truly, the leaders of this world have gathered against God and against his king. They have mocked and they have sought to destroy him. And God laughs. Because in their seeming victory, he struck the blow of their greatest defeat. In the crucifixion of his son, we're going to see he lifted him and enthroned him and now has placed him as the one who will rule over all things. We could walk down through the secularization of the West, the takeover of the East and communism. I'm, one of my favorite is when I spoke with our missionary, and we had a missionary in Albania, and I spoke with him about what was going on in Albania. And he said, I just got to tell you this, Albania uh, was one of the only country during the communist uh, rules to say in their constitution, in the, in the words of their constitution, there is no God. There is no God. They signed that constitution in a home in the capital city. This missionary said, but we laugh now about that because we own his house. And we teach missionaries how to preach the gospel in Albania from the place of the dictator who said there is no God. The nations gather against him and our God does what? Laughs. How foolish. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Whether you want to accept him as that or whether you want to reject him, it doesn't change the facts. So we see here the declaration of God. Third, we see the dominion of the king. This stanza takes on the voice of the Messiah, the one who would be the king in the end. But before that, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Hebrews 1.5 tells us that this is directly related to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.5 says, to who did he say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, he said it of Jesus. He didn't say it of angels. He didn't say it of Moses. He didn't say it of Jewish kings. He said it of Jesus. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of your earth, your possession. As we look here at uh, this, we're reminded of 2 Samuel 7, 14, where God said that he would adopt the son of David as his son. And so many have wrongly again seen this as fulfilled in Solomon. Solomon's only a shadow of the fulfillment that would come in Christ. Solomon, the greater son of David, did rule and reign over all of the promised land of the Mosaic Covenant. He received all of the land from the Euphrates all the way over into the, uh, to the sea, the great sea, the Mediterranean, 
and from just north of Egypt all the way up into Syria. He ruled and reigned that land near the end of his tenure as king. But as we know, it fell. And that kingdom only lasts for a short time, and then it's destroyed. And the sons of Solomon see their kingdom divided among them. So Solomon can't be the fulfillment of this text. This text says that the ends of the earth will be the possession of this king. Truly, verse 8 is telling us that what was told to Abraham will come true. Through you and your offspring, all the nations shall be blessed. See, the Abrahamic covenant had a bigger vision than what we often think of. It wasn't just about a little plot of sand in the Middle East, but rather it was about the whole world being dominated and ruled by the glory of God. The Davidic covenant is likewise that way. It predicts of a kingdom that will have no end, a kingdom that will stretch from sea to sea. The Psalms tell us the glory of the Lord will wrap the whole of the earth. So it's a much bigger thing than just the Middle East, isn't it? This passage says, if you ask, I will give the nations to you as a heritage and the ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here, the writer David picks up the terms that are used by the Egyptians. Now, in history, we know that the Egyptian pharaohs would take a ceremony, build pot clays, different color, for each of the nations around Egypt, that surrounded Egypt. And they would place them out, and when they were coronated, they were break these with a rod as a symbolic gesture to say we will rule over you right you will not rule over us we will rule over you here David picks that up in this psalm but here he's not talking about a symbolic gesture but rather a realized thing I will rule all the nations is what this king is saying because I ask my father will grant to me rule over every people and every tongue and every tribe his dominion will be an everlasting dominion. The delight of submission. 10 through 11 tell us that the leaders of the nations are being called to submit to this king. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Here the Caesarean vassal kings are being displayed for us. The greater king is calling on the lesser kings to bow to him to submit to him, to come under his providential and good rule. He's calling them to serve him, not, not in rebellion against him, but rather in submission to him. Verse 12 gives us the term which is very questionable in the language, but I think kiss the son is a good translation. It shows of what the, what, what the servant kings would have done to the greater king. They would have run to him and they would have bowed before him and they would have kissed his feet in sign of submission to say, our kingdom is now your kingdom. You rule over us. We will rule for you. We will be your kings. That's truly what we see here. And in Luke 7, it even happened to Jesus in the Gospels as he was there they came and kissed his feet, in some ways picturing our text, Jesus being the king of kings. And so we see here that they serve with fear and they rejoice in trembling. They kiss the son. Why? Because his anger will come against them and they will perish if they don't. For his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed is the one who comes under his rule or takes refuge in him. 
The exegesis of this text is very simple. It's straightforward. It's easy to put together, even for somebody as slow-witted as I am. You can place these things together. What do they mean for us? That's the question we're left asking, right? Okay, all this great truth, wonderful, but what does it mean? We could stop our explanation because I think we've described the verses. We've talked about their history. We've said what they mean and who they relate to, but that's not enough. There can be no true understanding of this passage unless we take a moment to look at their fulfillment in Christ and to flesh that out and to see it in truth. You see, because verses 1 through 3, while it does talk about the kings of the nations, the truth is it's talking about some of you here. You have set your heart against God. You have denied His Son. You have mocked Him. You say, well, you know, I don't, I don't hate God. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not mocking Him. Yes, the fact that you draw in breath, and yet you don't expel that in praise to Him willingly, is a mockery of Him. If you're outside of Christ today, your biggest need is to realize that you sit against the one who created you. You have taken up in your mind counsel against the most holy. You have said, I'm wiser than him. I have no need of him. I will rule myself. I will be independent. Verses 1 through 3 is not just a statement about generalized nations. It's rather the statement of every lost man, woman, and child's heart this morning. You are saying, I don't need you. And I don't want your kingdom. What does God do? God laughs. But this time, you know, when we think about his laughter, we think rather of the chuckle. I do. When I think personally of this passage, I think, what did, the, what did God think of the 18-year-old Carlton who thought he had it all figured out and all the ducks in a row? What did God? He laughed, but it was that laugh of a strong man over a weak one. Pity was coming forward in his laughter. Like, this kid, bless his heart. He, think he's, he thinks he's got it all figured out. And he set his king in place historically, and yet that king became the king of my life. And lost man, woman, child in here, he can be the king of your life. He has been enthroned so that he might rule over you. Not simply over some vague idea of the nations, but rather over your heart this morning. He can reign. In verses 4 through 6, we see the sovereign plan of God to exalt Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Philippians 2, Paul tells us that that plan included Christ stepping down because he saw the sinfulness of man. He, he said in his mind to step down from the throne of glory and humble himself and come in the form of a man, even to the point of being a servant to the cross, the servant of death. He died so that you might live. God's response to your mockery is to send one who can save you from your insanity and bring you 
from your ignorance into truth. That's his response. He doesn't hate you. He pities you. And he has mercy on you. So he sets his king on the hill. And he has done that through Christ's life. Christ came and fulfilled the yoke of the law and carried the burden of the law so that you might have his burdens and take his yoke, which is light and easy. He came seeing you as an enemy, and yet he loved you and he died for you that you might be reconciled to the most holy. Jesus Christ has been enthroned because he deserves that throne. He stepped down from the throne of glory. He humbled himself into the flesh, came as God in the flesh, and he now has been raised to the right hand of the Father. Where, as he entered there, as we see in our passage, he was told, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Listen, when Christ was raised from the dead, and he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, Acts 2 says, He asked God for the nations. And God's response was, Yes. How do we know that? Because he poured forth his Spirit on the people of Pentecost so that what we see is a victorious Jesus ruling and reigning as Psalm 110 had prophesied he would, sending forth his spirit on his daughters and his sons that they might prophesy and they might preach his gospel. He has filled us with his spirit, church. Now I want to transfer. I've talked to lost people. I want to talk to the church. What does this text mean to us? He has been enthroned, and he has asked for the nations. Listen, there are people coming into the kingdom of God this very day from every tribe and every tongue and every people on the planet. You can make two mistakes with this passage. You can go back and say it's all about historical Israel, and it's only about the coronation of Israeli kings and the throne of their father David. That's a mistake, but listen, as deadly a mistake is to say, this will only happen in the future. In the future, all the nations will gather to Jesus and they will come before His throne and they will worship Him. No. Right now, church, is the age and the era where the gospel is bringing people into reconciliation with the God who rules and reigns over the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the message of the gospel. And He has commissioned you and He has commissioned me to preach the good news that they might come and kiss the Son before they are consumed in His wrath. The truth is, on the cross He defeated sin, death, and Satan. And then He sent forth His message it's a precursor to what will come. Listen, Paul picks this very language up in the Gospels. I mean, in the epistles, as he talks about the Gospel. You don't believe me? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to close right here. What is the church's response to Psalm chapter 2? Well, I know what the church's response needs to be. I know what my response needs to be. Admittedly, I'm not there all the time. The apostles preached that Jesus Christ fulfilled Psalm 2 in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension to the throne. He rules and he reigns forevermore. And he must rule and reign, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, until God has made his enemies his footstool. 
as was predicted in Psalm 110. So what are we to do while God is doing all of this? I want to read this passage with you as an exposition of the idea of what it means to find refuge in Christ and call others to refuge in Him. Psalm 2, verse 12. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, creature, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let me just say, right there. That means that the old old mocking enemy of God has been brought under peace terms and now is at peace with God. The old creature of derision is gone. The new creature of submission has come. And they have kissed the Son. They have accepted Him as their King. That's what we did in coming to Christ. Now look. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ did what? Reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He was doing what? He was fulfilling Psalm 2. He was reconciling the world to himself. He was fulfilling the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Is in Romans 4, verse 13 says that he now rules and reigns over the earth. The whole earth is his. It's happened. And now it's being declared through what? The ministry of reconciliation. Who is the minister of reconciliation? Christ. And who are his ambassadors? That's what we need to know. Now listen, in the ancient world, a king conquered a people by doing one of two things. Crushing them or getting them to submit. The great emperor would send ambassadors into the nations that he was going to conquer with peace treaty. Our king has his army. He will crush you. Submit. Here's the terms of submission. The terms. If you don't take the terms, when he comes, he will kill every man, woman, and child. He will enslave those who remain. He will destroy your cities. He will burn the earth. Submit or be submitted. God's wrath burns quickly. But he has sent forth a peace treaty. In the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He is calling you to submit. Not in the future. Now. When He comes, there will be no time for submission. There will be no age and era where you might then turn to Him. No. When He comes, He will do exactly what the ancient emperors did. If you haven't submitted, He will conquer you. Philippians 2 said, He will make you bow your knee. And he will make your tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So listen, either you will submit to the terms that he has set forward and live, or you will deny them and he will conquer you and you will confess him in hell for eternity. There's no other options. So what, who has the ministry of being an ambassador? Christ is our minister of reconciliation Who is our ambassadors? Verse 19, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting them 
entrusting to us, who? The church, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are making God's appeal. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? If you're not, He will crush you. You see the urgency of the message. Psalm 2 calls us to be urgent with the message. Christ is coming. If you believe He's coming, you need to be telling your neighbor and your friend and your co-worker and the nations He's coming. And when He comes, He's going to submit all of you. Please submit. And we're perfect ambassadors in that way, aren't we? Who else can identify with a sinner but a sinner? One who has already submitted. But to sit in the cubicle next to your friend and say, Listen, I'm not better than you. Two years ago, I was just like you. Oh, but the message came. And I bowed my knee. I'm no longer in mockery of him. I love him. He's my king. I've kissed his feet. I have submitted my heart, my life, and truth to him. Come with me. Come with me. We plead, we implore, we beg so they might come. In the end, we, are trust, we, we can trust that God will have some from every tribe and every tongue. Evangelism ultimately is guaranteed success in Psalm 2 because the king does rule and he rules over the nations which are his heritage. You go share the gospel. This guy doesn't come. You keep sharing the gospel. You keep trusting God for souls. You keep sharing the gospel and trusting God for souls. And you see some coming. Well, guaranteed the success. He will rule and reign over the tribes of the earth. We are his ambassadors, church. So if you're here and you're lost, you need to come in submission to him and believe and trust in him alone for your salvation. And if you're in him, found refuge in him, it's not time to recline and rest and wait for some coming age when we will all sit around the table of the Lord and eat. That's coming. But between now and then, we are to share the message of reconciliation. We are to pour back out the grace which we have been given. Because in truth, that day is coming when He will come again. When He comes again, the Bible says that around His throne, in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, we get the picture of around the throne will be some from every nation. Every tribe, every tongue, every ethnos will be gathered around Him. And He will be ruling with them and reigning with them. So I just ask you, Where's your part in this? Do you find yourself in stanza one? Are you finding refuge like 12 says in the last stanza in Christ? Ultimately, Christian, since you're in Him, are you sharing Him with others who need Him?